Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome back to Boom! I'm Hannah. I'm Melissa. And in this episode, we have a treat for you. (laughs) (laughs) We talk with Dr. Mike Son. uh, He's the chief scientist at 3Motion AI. And we talk about how to make biomechanical assessments more accessible and how 3Motion AI is doing just that and really revolutionizing what we can do in baseball. We discuss everything from deception, which has a special meaning in the baseball biomechanics world, yes, to the challenges of using 2D motion to assess biomechanics and some of the technical things that 3Motion AI has done to overcome those challenges. Yeah, it was extremely inspiring, both with the interview and also if you watch our YouTube channel, you'll see um, the beautiful (laughs) space that Mike lives in. And I felt inspired to make my living space also beautiful. Mike is just an awesome human. We could have talked to him all day. So. Yeah. We, we didn't believe that that was her, his real apartment. And so he got up and ran around. He had to run around yeah. <laughs> to show us, to prove it to us. We thought he was deceiving us. There's a lot of deception in this episode. So. Yeah. Count how many times. If you count the number of times we say deception and you get it right, we'll yeah. give you a sticker. Right. We even threw in a Taylor Swift reference. See if you find that. <laughs> well... Before we get started, we just want to ask if you enjoy Boom, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review us, share Boom with someone who you think you'd enjoy it. And just know that we are so grateful for you and for listening. It makes our day when we hear that people listen to Boom. So so thank you so much. So today's bit of boom comes from our very own Michael Rose, who, who is um, working as a podcast manager for Boom now, and he's so awesome. So we're really excited to be able to highlight some of the work by one of our awesome team members. And he published a pilot study on using wearable sensors to quantify throw counts and intensities during a season of youth baseball. So really sticking with the baseball theme here. And it was a cool study where the participants, so the youth baseball team, all wore a single IMU sensor on the outside of their upper arm, so on their throwing arm, during all of their baseball activities, so practices and games, throughout the entire duration of a season of baseball. They then wrote algorithms to identify throws in the data and be able to classify throw intensity using information mm-hmm. from two controlled data collections and applied the algorithms to nearly 19,000 throws wow. made by the team with over 98% accuracy. Wow, their algorithms were 98% accurate. That's incredible. Yeah, That's yeah. That's a number to strive for. And I, I liked when we we always want to know what is the purpose or meaning or how is this mm. impactful? I like how in the interview we're going to talk a lot about this, how to really zoom out and kind of remember what the point is. What is this all for? Yes. Yeah, and I think this was talked about really nicely by Dr. Michael Freehill who's a co-author on the paper, and he presented this at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in 2021, their annual meeting on actual pitches versus total throw count in youth pitchers. In this talk, Dr. Freehill expanded on how in-game pitches only make up a small fraction of the total throws that players make during a given game, and how using total throw count as a measure of arm load and means to mandate player rest would be a better method than the current pitch count oh, guidelines. Which only count during the game versus in this study, they look exactly. at every single pitch over all practices. Exactly. Yeah. And also thinking beyond pitchers. So players who play in certain positions oh. like catcher will make a lot of throws during the game um, compared to some other players. And that information is currently left out of player rest guidelines. That's crazy. It seems like you're yeah you're only measuring like a tiny bit of the actual exactly. impact. That you're exactly. And I have a special connection, actually, to <laughs> Dr. Michael Freehill. He was my surgeon recently Whoa. for my UCL, my elbow UCL reconstruction. <laughs> yes, I have a nice scar here from Dr. Freehill. And we became pretty good friends. And I even got us matching bracelets. So, well, his said, 
his says badass, um, mine says bad bitch, but I don't think we've ever used these terms on Bing before, so, so we're not sure content warning. <laughs> but he saw my bracelet and was like, that's cool, um, I want that, and I was like, do you want this exact thing? And he was like, well, I think I want badass, so I got us all matching bracelets. Oh my gosh. We're pretty good friends now. Thus, I digress. Anyway, <laughs> it was awesome to see. Also, this like collaboration, I think, with surgeons and just like remembering the impact that this actually does have, that biomechanics does have on mm-hmm. on humans and athletes. So yeah, and Melissa is all about impact on humans. <laughs> Look at her making friends with her surgeon. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So thank you, Melissa, for sharing that amazing <laughs> bit of boom. And your, I love, I love hearing your stories, and I'm so glad that our listeners get to hear them too. <laughs> well, I like having an outlet to talk about it. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now let's uh, jump into our interview with Mike Son. Okay, today we are really excited to be talking with Dr. Mike Song. Mike is the chief scientist at 3Motion AI, which leverages elite athletic training and performance in the game of baseball. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Excited to, uh, to talk to you today. Yeah, we're super excited for this because I... Have, I don't think we've talked about baseball or sports biomechanics that much on Boom, and yeah. um, you're clearly an expert. We always like to start at your beginnings um, and ask the question, when did you first know you wanted to become a biomechanist? And I'm interested and curious where maybe a love for baseball <laughs> uh, fit into that timeline as well. So the um, the funny answer to that question is it was like maybe two years ago. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I God, can tell you have you, to like, think that far back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my first day of grade nine, so freshman year of high school, I have to speak Canadian American, translate between the two. But grade nine, first year of high school, I got asked to be the athletic therapist for our football team. They were like, we'll send you to go and work at the University of Windsor, teach you how to tape ankles, pay for your first responder. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I'm like four foot 11 at the time. I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that sounds like fun. I, and I love football. So yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So all through high school, uh, I, I worked as an athletic therapist for the football team, like obviously not certified or anything, but, you know, just there to, to help tape ankles, that sort of thing. So that was all high school. And then as I went to my undergrad, I did that for four and a half years. And then my last semester, you know, I was thinking, I'm going to get into athletic therapy. Like, this is the only thing I've ever cared Mm -hmm. about. And then I did a a work placement in my co-op program in ergonomics. Ah. Kind of at the last minute there, it was like, hmm, I can take a job that's very comfortable. Uh, I don't have to spend 18 hours a week on a bus. Mm-hmm. I'll go and do that. So I got a job uh, as an ergonomist uh, in the, the city of Ottawa. And I did that for about a year. And then was kind of like, everybody around me has a master's degree. I think I should probably do that. So I went back another year after that, after working in like Flint, Michigan, in the auto sector, I went back to do a, a master's in ergonomics at University of Windsor. And I still remember it very vividly. At this point in time, I'm like, I'm going to be an ergonomist, right? Like I use biomechanics, but I'm not a biomechanist. I'm going to be an ergonomist. Mm. And I remember getting uh, an issue of Sports Illustrated that had uh, Tim Lincecum on the cover. And it was an entire interview just about how he moved. And Dr. Glenn Fleissig is like all over that article. And I read it. And I'm like, that is so cool. But I'm never going to be able to get into something like that because I've just that's over my head. I pursued ergonomics. And then I got bit by the research bug, just fell in love with doing research. Uh, I started off doing an internship for my master's and then working on that project, just fell in love with the research process, did a thesis as well, and then uh, got accepted uh, to do my PhD at McMaster. And this was all still in ergonomics. But really, the biomechanics part of this came in uh, when I was applying my PhD thesis to baseball which was fatigue modeling. And oh. at that point, in time, it kind of all came together. But it's definitely, uh, I was never like, hey, I'm going to be a biomechanist uh, here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of biomechanics is one of the tools in my toolbox that I'm, I'm used to using. And I would still say that's that's probably the case. Yeah, it sounds like you were trying to follow these paths, but biomechanics just seemed to 
not let you go. <laughs> I, I think that's probably pretty true. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I didn't let it go either. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm very much at the center, like probably more a kinesiologist and like, I love to call on whatever tool I think is appropriate. Um, but sometimes the tools call on you and they just speak to you. And that's the one that you should use for that problem. Yeah, that's so exciting. And it's so nice to hear that all of those things sort of came together for you in your PhD mm-hmm. and your interests sort of aligning now, which is really nice. And I think it's it's great that you have that different background than most biomechanists because mm-hmm. then you bring that different perspective. So um, we're glad that, uh, that biomechanics kept calling you and then you uh, finally succumbed to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think one of my favorite, like my favorite little like career nuggets is that out of my PhD, I have publications in sports psychology. I have publications in uh, like Journal of Physiology. And I have uh, publications that were more poster, like kind of in the motor control domain, as well as the biomechanics ones. So it's cool to, to look back and say, you know, I was never thinking of it as a biomechanics problem or a psychology problem. It was a human movement problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, you call on the tool that's appropriate at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we love that holistic yeah. approach. So, um, can you tell us more now about the different current projects that you have going on at Three Motion AI? Yeah, so I'm chief scientist at Three Motion AI, and I'm also an adjunct professor at uh, Brock University, which is kind of how we got set up here. And I work with Dr. Mike Holmes there in his neuromechanics lab. You know, and Mike and and his his students are really doing awesome work, both in ergonomics, but also in sport biomechanics. Mm. I'm also working at Ontario Tech University, also as an adjunct professor there. And we've kind of built this really cool kind of research community on trying to make biomechanics data a little bit more accessible. And that's Mm. really the biggest focus, I would say, with 3Motion AI. Like if I were to say there's one core competency, one core philosophy, it's measure how you move. And that might be with health implications, that might be with sport performance implications. But at the end of the day, it's really about measure how you move. Hmm. So our first product that we launched last January was Pitch AI, which is a kind of mobile pitching mechanics assessment tool. And I say assessment, not evaluation, because it's more just saying Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. how you move. And we're describing it through numbers and we're objectively quantifying certain things about the pitching motion. Right now, we've launched a hitting biomechanics tool that's through another uh, system called HitTracks. So it's a it's a ball flight tool, but we've also launched a tool to do some very kind of initial range of motion and sport performance testing. So all of it kind of comes together. And at the core, it's all like single camera. So how much Mm -hmm. can we get from your cell phone camera to drive this type of analysis? Wow. That's impressive that you can do it all from a single camera. Like, <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not without its limitations, as I'm sure sure we'll get into. But uh, you know, when we come down to, even if you add a second camera, like two phones, now you're talking about two thousand dollars worth of phones, <laughs> right? Like, you know, yeah. if you've got two yeah. iPhones, you know, it's now even if you sync those two things up, right? There's going to be that trade-off in there. And that's really where we're trying to get to is what's the trade-off between the accuracy mm-hmm. and the accessibility of the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in, we were happy to do and excited to do some of the tutorials on Pitch AI and kind of walk through the different levels of like from beginning biomechanics to sort of advance the advanced metrics that you can get from Pitch AI. And it was really cool to see that evolution and also just have like really nice, concise and thorough explanations of each of the different metrics that you offer. So I'm wondering how you came up with those metrics. Did you, you kind of talked earlier about like targeting a need and really filling that need using different toolboxes to fill that need. So was it that or or was it data driven based on a training data set that you had or how, how did you come up with those needs? Kind of all over the place. So really a lot of them was a way of trying to objectively quantify things that were kind of gospel. In baseball. Mm, so huh. very commonly, um, you'll hear somebody talk about a pitcher and say they've got a long arm action or a short arm action, or they've got an explosive delivery or an easy delivery. Like there's a lot of these like kind of subjective qualitative terms. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of just picked the brains off of all these great scouts, great coaches over the years to really kind of say, you know, what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> and how do we put a number to it? 
Yeah. You know, having great arm speed, what does that mean? So in many of those cases, a lot of those metrics are just an objective representation of a qualitative thing that's been mentioned in the past. Mm-hmm. And then with, once we do that, then we start doing some validation around it, right? So it's like, yeah. does arm speed correlate with velocity? Does having a, a long arm action relate to greater stress on the elbow? So it's really kind of like we've we've worked from like the, hey, what's important to you, coach? Hey, what's important to you, scout? And then, hey, what's important to you, biomechanist? And can we put a number on, mm. on it? So that's really kind of been how we build a lot of those metrics. And then a lot of the other ones are literally just based off of other scientific research. You know, where should certain joint angles be at the instant of foot plant and maximum mm. external rotation and ball release? So we kind of pulled from from all these different areas. Yeah, that's so interesting because then it seems like when you have that second part that you're talking about, you can kind of close the loop and then start to give feedback and fine tune the pitching movements. And as you're talking about using or finding some of the qualitative metrics that they've talked about in baseball and then validating them. I'm curious, has there been any surprises or things that have been unexpected with things that maybe were really well known and used and and maybe not having the validation that supports that as maybe as important as as they've been talked about before? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that we found is how many metrics have kind of had an, an implied linearity to them in the sport performance space, like more is better. Mm. Unequivocally, more is better. (laughs) Um, What we've found in so many of these cases is that more is better until a point. Mm. Or there's kind of like a, you know, the inverted U and there's a sweet spot in there that's like Mm -hmm. super important for you to to get to. You know, a big one is stride length. Mm. Time and time again, it's, you know, more stride length is better. As that pitcher strides down the rubber, they should, you know, stride as far as they possibly can. But if they stride too far, what we've seen is that they're not able to get enough of a a brace on their lead leg there to transfer energy to the pelvis to start that kinematic sequence in the delivery. So that's one that's an example. The the short versus long arm action is actually quite interesting because what we found is that people who have really long arm actions, so a really extended elbow into foot plant or really short arm action, so an extremely flexed elbow into foot plant, In both cases, you have to kind of increase arm speed and and increase torque. So there's kind of an inverted U. There's like a, there's in the middle, you want to have your arm action. So not extremely flexed, not extremely extended. So that's kind of been what's really been interesting when we look at some of these more traditional metrics is there's a lot of them where it's like more is better up until a certain point. Yeah, I liked how that was very present in in the different sections of the tutorial that we went through. And um, yeah, like kind of you gave some good nuance to that nonlinearity and like <laughs> we even took the quiz afterwards. <laughs> I will say I only got a 70%, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, you That's can still print off yeah. the PDF, put that yeah, PDF exactly. on the wall next yeah. to your, your, yeah, your PhD. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's always, yeah. There's also always room, there's for, room growth. for improvement, yeah, exactly. which is good. Yeah, I learned exactly. a lot about baseball that was really, yeah. And even some dynamics in there that was, um, yeah, really fun to, to go through. One metric that I saw in the these tutorials where you're explaining how to use pitch AI and was the deception metric. And I, well, I mean, I haven't heard of many of the metrics just because I, well, I played softball, but we don't overhand pitch. So I don't know a lot of these pitching metrics, but I was really curious if you could talk more about the deception metric um, because (laughs) I just thought it was a cool, cool name. And I feel like we should have that, you know, in a lot of uh, deception is high in life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of days where I could use a little deception. Uh, the nice thing with everything being like work from home and Zoom now is like the, the deception metric in my work from home life is just turn off the webcam that day. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to brush my hair today. Yeah. Um, so um, that's probably one of the most fun metrics that we've worked on. I'd say the last six months, there's been a ton of like media attention around it. Because if you think about a pitcher delivering the ball, and you think about what makes hitting so difficult. It, it's really an information processing challenge. So it's a matter of a hitter trying to get enough information so that they can decide to swing and where to swing. There's a lot of things that go into that. One of them is just straight up velocity. Like if mm-hmm. you throw harder, you have less time to react. That's just 
that that's mm-hmm. just uh that's cut and dry and there's a lot of like debate in the baseball world about how important velocity is but it's like if you boil it down to just you know that basic understanding it's like yeah if you have less time to react it's harder to make a decision right yeah that math makes sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> that one that one is linear yeah <laughs> that one's linear. Yeah. yeah but on the other side of that you can have two pitchers who throw 95 miles an hour and batters will report it's easier to pick the ball up out of this guy's hand than this guy's hand. And that would be the same in softball too, right? Like yeah. there's a deceptive component there with like a rise ball versus a sinker in that case. Right. And, you know, there's actually some really cool biomechanics work done in the softball space, but we can we can dive there later. But the whole idea of the deception metric is that you take into account velocity. So if you've got somebody whose velocity is the same and you've got somebody who they call tunnel the ball, And tunneling is basically at the moment where a hitter has to make a decision on to swing or not, how do the different pitches look? So a curveball, if it pops up out of the hand right away compared to a fastball, which drives right out of the hand right away, that pop-up curve is going to be a lot easier for the hitter to see than like maybe a slider that matches the same plane as the fastball up until Mm -hmm. a certain point, and then they deviate. But then the final component to being deceptive to a hitter is how well you hide the ball. And our deception metric basically quantifies in milliseconds how much time does that hitter have to see the ball in the hand obscured by that pitcher's body or by their their upper arm. So what Mm. we found is uh, the pitchers who get into maximum external rotation later in their delivery – so they've less time between external rotation and ball release. That's a more deceptive type of delivery. And we see some some pitchers, you know, in Yusmero Petit is one, and there's a really cool article in The Ringer about his deceptiveness, is that he throws like 90 miles an hour, but he's so hard for the, the hitters to pick up that ball out of his mm. hand. And it's part of how he uses his body to kind of obscure things. Mm-hmm. So it was a fun metric to work on. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some cool things with a lot of our, our clients and our users. And what a cool discovery to make. I think that just shows when you can measure things in a more accessible way, you get more measurements. And then you can learn more things from these patterns that uh, we might not have been able to even notice with our naked human eye before. Yeah. Well, and also when you listen to more people, right? Like (laughs) to come up with these ideas, right? Like it's not a matter of us sitting in the biomechanics lab going, you know, more external rotations better, stride lengths better, (laughs) you know, these types of things. Like there's this real battle in baseball and it's, it's everywhere in the world of like old school versus new school. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it should be right school (laughs) and it should be the schools listening to each other and saying, Mm -hmm. Hey, what's important to you. And then we can try and put a number to that. And then, you know, we can put a number to other things and try and teach that to the old school coaches and scouts. And I think the deception metric is a really good example of kind of that coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love this positive feedback loop between you and the the people that you're serving and the like learnings ba- both back and forth. I'm curious, like what has been some of the feedback on how coaches and athletes are using these metrics? Is it like really easy to then like take these metrics and learn something on how to, you know, tweak one little thing or like how, you know, can you give us some insight there? Yeah. I mean, if, if there's one like thing we've learned is that like, teaching somebody something totally new is, is hard. And that doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it's biomechanics or not. And there's been a lot of challenges just in conveying what's important. And there's so much information, right? Like even right. if you look at like the way we set things up, there's like your basic numbers, then you're an intermediate, you're advanced, and then you can get mm-hmm. into right. like full waveform kinematics. And those can be challenging for people and it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But what we've found kind of with our coaches is they start to get comfortable with one number at a time. And then they see how that number changes something else. And I think one of the most unique and beneficial use cases that we've seen with pitch AI is in seeing like, if you're going to make an athlete do a certain drill, the drill is done to change how they move. Does it actually change how they move in the direction that you would intend? Mm. And that's kind of where pitch AI is so useful, right? Because Yes, it's not as accurate as a full marker-based system. It's not as accurate as a multi-camera system, but it's very reliable. And our measurements, test, 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 they're very reliable and they're very stable. 
So if you do want to get out on the bullpen behind the, the stadium or in the gym or anywhere, you know, you pull up your phone, you get a few throws on the mound, you know, before mm-hmm. you get a few throws of them doing a certain sort of constraint drill. And then you measure again after and you go, did it change? Mm-hmm. And if it didn't change, like, is that a result of, you know, that drill not being good and that person, or is it that person maybe not a responder to that type of a stimulus? So it's given a lot of feedback in that sense where we're not necessarily seeing that one drill fits everyone. There's certain drills that work really well for certain players. And that's been like the most awesome use case that I've seen. And one of the most exciting ways that I've seen that in the baseball development group who's up here in Toronto, Lennon Richards and, and Dr. Dobos there, they've done a really good job of trying to quantify different drills and saying, hey, do these drills actually change our athletes' movement? Mm, that's so cool to hear how applied it is. And I think quantifying, not just cross-sectionally evaluating, but then actually being able to quantify changes, which is really exciting. In that like training thing too, I don't know if you noticed it, but like one of the things we say is like, you know, it's best to learn through example. And one of the things we say is get the app, have somebody throw at 50% and then 75% and 100% of their intensity and look at how things change. And that's kind of your foundational way of going, okay, how do I measure this over time? How do I see what these yeah. differences are? And, and that's been pretty useful too. Yeah, that's so interesting. And as I've been working on in my research on mobile studies for collecting biomechanical measurements, I've really realized some of the challenges that there are at making these technical programs and applications not just accessible, but really usable. And I've mostly been working with patients and clinicians, but I could see that there'd be a lot of overlap too with with athletes and coaches. And I was wondering if you could talk more about this step in translating technology and some of the tips you might have for doing that effectively. Like when you're saying they can just download the app and start using it. Is it really that simple? And I think creating, yeah, having technical challenges really is a barrier to use. And so I'm wondering how you've made it easy enough for people to just pick up and run with it. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely like a kind of a fine line there too, because When you're dealing with human data, like human movement data, human health data, like you also want to be careful, right? Like my biggest fear has always been screwing up somebody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I went down to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Kinetic Pro Performance in in Tampa and was working with one of my my business partners, Nate Pearson. And Nate's a pitcher for the Blue Jays. And there's a couple other guys there too. And they're like, you know, hey, Mike, can you come and, you know, look at my report? Like, can you give me some tips on my mechanics? I'm like, dude, you throw 96, you're in the big leagues. The last thing I want to do is say anything is wrong and I screw you up. And yeah. Like, yeah. It hurt you. I, yeah. So it's a lot of pressure in that sense. So when you talk about like the implementation and making it easy, there's a sweet spot there of making it too easy that people can misrepresent your data. Mm. But then there's another side of it where it's like, if people take 25 minutes to get up and running the first time they throw, you know, they're not going to use it either. And our lead designer is Heather Moore. And Heather's got a background heavily in UX design, but she's really like a strong usability, accessibility advocate. And she really understands that space. So she's done a lot of things in there to try and make it so that it's a, a very directed experience within the app. There's other things that are in there too that make it hard. Like, you know, if you want people to register, we do it through the web portal as opposed to the app because Apple takes a huge chunk of your registration fees. So, you know, that's something Mm -hmm. you got to balance in there too. So it's a very kind of fine line of being like, what is the best way to get somebody into your system and using it right away? And then how do you get them using the data to get people better? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the biggest challenges. Uh, what I would say on that front, like, you know, where we've seen success is when, you know, I kind of take a back seat and I let some of the coaches and scouts chime in and I let Heather kind of take the wheel. And she does a great job of kind of finding out what would be the best way to display certain data and and get that to the the coach. It's so nice to have that team component, like that we're talking about interdisciplinariness and like your many tools at the very beginning, but also having different people, right? And their different perspectives and jobs and roles to cover those bases. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like my favorite part of any part of my working life. 
Like I love to work with like other really good people. And like, I love to be, I love to be uncomfortable in like, you know, <laughs> feel like, feel like I don't know what's going on. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm desperate in many situations to just have somebody be like, Hey, this is my domain. I know it super well. And I know enough to kind of help guide the question so they can get the answer. But yeah, I mean, We've got a great team here, even in our biomechanics. There's there's three of us, Dr. Colin McKinnon, Dr. Alora Brenneman Wilson, and both of them are just so brilliant and so awesome to work with that like, you know, I come up with an idea and then they they do some really cool things and then they work with Heather to figure out what's the best way to show these data so that it's useful. That's definitely the most fun part of uh, of my job. Yeah, your humility showed in your in the tutorial too, not to keep going back to the tutorial. <laughs> Hopefully everyone goes love the tutorial. The tutorial. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I love yeah. how you just yeah, you gave a shout out to like all of the people that helped found like these do the founding biomechanics to help us get to where we are. I don't know. That's just really nice to see because like we have to remember that science is just such a human endeavor that we're all building upon together. So Yeah. Yeah. What is it? It's a PhD is doing more and more. Uh, what is it doing uh, more and more (laughs) until you know absolutely everything about nothing (laughs) yeah yeah learning more and more about less and less until you learn everything about nothing and you just you get that curvature and you just make a little dent in there and you've expanded human knowledge a little bit so it's uh that's a it's it's cool um well we had like one we love to get a little bit into some of the technical things and we were like with, between Melissa's expertise doing markerless motion capture with 2D video uh, one question we had was what are the, some of the challenges in applying markerless motion capture to such fast motion you're saying you know pitches at 96 miles per hour versus trying to recreate like Melissa's study has been doing sit to stand motion or walking mm-hmm. so yeah can you just talk about some of those challenges and how you face them Yeah, I mean, a big part of those challenges, right, was getting the frame rate maxed out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's a really cool thing about like modern technology. And I think why we're seeing a boom in so much of this human movement data is just it's so much easier to get. And having 240 frames per second video on basically every cell phone out there, that's huge, (laughs) right? And realistically, we'd probably want to get up to 300 if we were being like real sticklers to biomechanics in the pitching motion, but 240 is kind of a a limitation at this point in time. But that being said, there's still challenges around lighting. You know, if you've got somebody throwing in a basement or it's really dark, you know, you need a lot of light to make sure that the image is clear enough for you to do a proper analysis in there. So that's a big one. You know, if somebody's outside on a really sunny day in Arizona or Florida, Mm -hmm. spring training, you know, those data look spectacular. Mm. they're 100 percent perfect every single time but when you get into these darker areas you know you get somebody wearing you know a long sleeve black shirt like this one or maybe like you know it's tied down here so that's going to throw off some of the computer vision stuff if there's a black wall behind you so there's some stuff in there that has been uh definitely challenging that you know our team has worked towards like the three-quarter sleeve thing was a challenge at first and then we had to put in like a kinematic constraint to say hey you know forearms don't change length <laughs> yeah. during a throwing <laughs> motion <laughs> just be clear on if that they do yeah. something yeah. bad is happening yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like when you're doing your markered one and like you know a marker flies off and you see the foot fly across the room like, no that didn't actually happen that didn't actually happen <laughs> so yeah understanding some of those limitations has been big and a big part of what we do is try to constrain camera angle. That's been a big one. So in the Pitch AI app, I like to refer to it as almost like a check caching app, where it's like you turn it sideways oh, yeah. and then it frames the picture here. And there's a dash line and we say, put the picture's belt along here, start them in this section and hit go. Mm-hmm. And then they pitch. People will ask us, hey, well, can you do a from behind the angle? Or can you do a, a front-facing angle? And we say, well, not right now. Maybe in the future once we've had enough mm-hmm. to train the model properly. But in this case, we're looking at open side only. Mm-hmm. And same with Hit AI. That's open side. With our range of motion tests, we try to say, you know, you face the camera in that case, no matter what you're doing. So that's one of the things, kind of constraining the motion to fit within a certain plane so that yeah. we can properly predict that third dimension with our neural networks. That's a big place to, to start. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think those are some of the challenges I've noticed too, are things with angles and sometimes instructions aren't 
aren't enough. And if you can have something that sort of guides a person to through that and, and make it more obvious, then it's really, it's really cool to learn some of those tricks from you about that. And I guess too, what's exciting is that it's just starting somewhere with biomechanics. Like you were saying, you know, we can't do these different angles now, but sometime in the future, mm-hmm. perhaps, and that trade-off between making things as best as they possibly can be versus having something usable and ready to go and collecting more data to, to make that better. So I think that's something that's exciting me too, as we're chatting is that you just ran with it and and built something and and deployed it and people are using it now. And it doesn't need to be the same, not quality, but accuracy of say like motion capture in a lab or something like that, but just having some place to start. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world is filled with people that want to tell you that you can't do something, mm. right? Or or reasons to not do something or reasons to not try and change. And, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying if I said we didn't have that same problem. You know, I get on Twitter and there's pure academics that love to try and like dunk on us and tell us that what we're doing is argue with us about how many decimal places we use or, you know, <laughs> yeah. getting into stuff like this. And it's just like, you guys are missing the point. Like what's, what's the point, right? Like in all of our work, I think that's an important thing to kind of pause sometimes and look back and say, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> like, am yes. I, what am I, what am I trying to do here? And in this case, it's like, we're trying to make it so that people can measure how pitchers move or hitters move or people who are in rehabilitation programs, are they moving better? And with our world going virtual and you want access to great clinicians, well, those clinicians still get good data. But what if you're in, you know, Northern Ontario here (laughs) and you need a float plane to get in, but you do have access to satellite internet, that person can still receive a physical assessment uh, that is capable of getting them the care that they need in that sense. The same Mm -hmm. thing, like, you know, you're in, let's say rural Idaho (laughs) Uh, and you're a great pitcher and your biomechanics are super sound. People are getting found now in different places. Like if you're going to sit here and just argue about, you know, was that the proper correlation to use to validate this paper? Was that the right decimal points to use in that? Like, I think you kind of, you lose sight of what the goal is. And Mm -hmm. we try and tackle everything from a very sound scientific background. And internally Mm -hmm. we treat everything like it was a publication. Mm -hmm. Like we grill each other. We, we test each other, you know, something comes up and it's like, Hey, this is done. We run through 10 iterations of it to make sure that what the numbers are coming out are, are true to the best Mm -hmm. of our ability. Um, But it's a bit of a different world than academia, right? Where there is a desire to get something out there and, like, that's what I keep coming back to. It's like, we're trying to help people get better. We're trying to help people stay healthy. And that's mm-hmm. more important to us than, you know, necessarily appeasing the uh, the critics and, you know, <laughs> the, the haters and losers of, of which there are many. <laughs> oh, yeah. The haters going to hate, yeah. as they say. Hate it. That is <laughs> actually true. The haters are, in fact, going to to hate. Yeah. Yeah. And you just have to shake Shake it off. Yeah, Shake it. That's yeah. yeah. Shake it off. Yeah. Somebody. Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> but I think too, it's like, I think you, when you put something out like that, it also builds excitement around biomechanics and what we're doing and it gets people engaged. And then you bring more people to the field who are curious mm-hmm. and want to explore it. And, and, you know, there is a time to have that rigor, like you're saying, and, and treating things, making sure that it's very scientifically sound, but it's also fun to have that excitement yeah. and share what we're doing and and see people yeah. engaged with that and then then being able to have more resources to do that or more people wanting to to work on those problems that we still have so what we see all the time too right like we'll have people who have more more intensive technical systems than us shine some doubt on what we're doing never actually mm-hmm. looking at the data and actually saying hey this isn't gone it's just they doubt on what's what's happening but at the end of the day i like the way i see it is like if i were to be head of a biomechanics program for some major league team starting tomorrow i would want pitch ai for every throw that's not on the field or not in the lab. Mm-hmm. You've got a huge facility down in the Dominican Republic, and I still want to know how those people are moving there. And mm-hmm. then I would have my biomechanics lab. You know, I'd have a, a great biomechanics lab that has force plates and you know, 36 cameras, whatever that might be, like, and be awesome. And then in my stadium, I'd have like a Kinetrax or a Simi system. And then yeah. I'd set up transfer functions to go in between them. So if you see this much external rotation in one system, what's that actually mean in the other? Right. Mm -hmm. Because in many times, 
two systems, you're going to have different normative ranges just because of how calculations are done and, and system limitations. So, you know, the way I view this is it's we're trying to find a way to get more people familiar with biomechanics data in human motion analysis. That's only going to benefit everybody <laughs> as the whole system grows, right? So I think there's a cool way for everybody in biomechanics to kind of work together. And there's some people that are going to be a little more consumer facing, you know, like us and some of our partners that we work with. Mm. And that's just going to drive interest in those more, you know, dedicated studies and people trying to replicate scientific experiments in that. I think that's a really cool kind of byproduct that we're going to see as we move forward. I love that vision. Like you really just laid it all out. Like imagine, I think I look at like fitness trackers and how people suddenly care about step count in this era. Um, Something that people probably never (laughs) thought about counting before, like not less about counting before we'll say. Yeah. Imagine someday you go, you're eating a hot dog at a baseball game and you're talking about the pitcher's arm path, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's been a few pitch AI assessments done with a beer and hot dog nearby. So (laughs) I feel like we need to do some more interviews with beers and hot dogs. (laughs) Not going to get an argument from me. We, it's so cool that you work with professional teams, mm-hmm. too, in sports, and you're talking a little bit about the difference between working in academics and, and working with a professional sports team. And we're wondering if you could just briefly talk about that a little bit more, maybe something that's really exciting about that and maybe some of the challenges with that as well. Yeah, I mean, the most exciting part is the the super obvious part, which is like sports is a celebration of human movement. Like there's so much that can go wrong over the course of your life and over your development. And then when you see like a human body move at like maximum uh, possible Mm -hmm. capacity or what we know is the maximum capacity, like it's just so cool. Like when you see somebody throw 100 miles an hour or I went to a Jays game and got a pitch AI video from the crowd of Nate throwing 102. And it's just like to look at that. Yeah. And you look at that and you just go, that was so cool to go and work with the athletes and get their feedback and to give them feedback at that highest level. It's that's just so inspiring and and so, Mm -hmm. so fun. I mean, we all like had some point in time where like, you know, understanding human movements cool. And when you get to see the best of it, like, (laughs) right. Like, it's just so cool. I think the most challenging part of uh, working at like in professional sport is that everybody thinks everybody else is a spy and it's like, they're all so guarded and you just want to like yell, like you're all doing the same thing. You're all doing great. Like you're all got access to the same stuff. One really cool thing that we had in ergonomics and working in like the auto sector was, and actually my like my PhD in postdoc was funded by this organization, which was called the Automotive Partnership Canada. And that was kind of a spinoff of the Auto 21 and US Car. And these were two organizations that took research money from everyone in the auto sector. So Ford, GM, Chrysler, they pooled resources on what they viewed as non-competitive issues. Mm-hmm. Like ergonomics was one of them. There are certain things that like in environmental standards and some fuel cell technology and stuff like that. And they pulled their money together and said, let's better understand this. Let's combine our resources and better understand it. And I think there's some stuff in baseball that would be great there. And, you know, maybe that's something like the American Baseball Biomechanics Society gets behind in the future. So, you know, there's some stuff where it's like you've got 30 plus like 30 teams all trying to get to the same answer on something And, you know, when they all get to the same answer, then that's no longer a competitive advantage to anybody, (laughs) right? It just keeps more people healthy and and keeps the product on the field more exciting. So, yeah, yeah, you know, trying to like, you know, a lot of times these, there people are asking you questions and you're like, listen, I know what you're trying to ask me. You're being so so coy about it. Just 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 say it. it. (laughs) Just say it. I know that you know that we know. That. I know that you know that we know. Oh, <laughs> so this so old cool. F over here, I heard yeah. it might be equal to MA. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just hypothetically speaking. <laughs> 
I was just talking to my advisor about this and potentially working in industry. And, and I was like, but my concern is like, I have to sign all these papers and I'm not going <laughs> to say anything about what's going on. But when I get excited about things, like I just want to tell everyone and, and like bounce ideas off each other. And he was like, yeah, you, I don't think you can do that. Like, <laughs> you specifically are not meant for a job like that. So it's like good to like, no, uh, yeah. You just need things. code words. I just need code words. The blue yeah. balloon touches the red balloon. <laughs> like I was saying before, though, like, you know, I can talk, uh, all of this is fine. There's certain things you're like, I can't get into like specific yeah. neural network characteristics and that. And that's the same you know, at the end of the day, too. Which like, specific characteristics could you not? Yeah. No, no. I mean, like uh, so much of it, too, right, is when stuff is so new and depending on what your organization is trying to get into, like being vocal about things is so important because the more people feel less intimidated by your data sets, or what your data is actually doing, the more likely they are to, to use your, your stuff. Yeah. Right. And I think that depends on what you're doing. Like there might be some really kind of very complicated IP. That's a huge advantage to a lot of companies. And we have that internally without a doubt. But I think the bigger part of it is more, you know, what we're saying to do with some of these biomechanics data and human movement data that doesn't matter what system it is. And that's just a valuable thing for all of our clients to know and anyone to know. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to get research findings out there. And it's not always peer-reviewed publication. And arguably, like, that sometimes is not the best. Like, I, I think about, like, you know, my first, like, ergonomics paper that did well was, like, a development of an office ergonomics tool. And I think it got, like, 8,000 downloads in the first year. And it was like top 10 in that journal. And it was like, okay, this is this is pretty cool. The first year that I blogged about baseball, I had 350,000 unique visitors to my website. And it comes back to what are you trying to do here? <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. if as a scientist, your goal is to educate the masses and make humanity a little bit better then you left <laughs> it behind, <laughs> you know, like try yeah. and get people a little bit better. Like what's the point? And peer yeah. review is mm-hmm. absolutely important. It absolutely is important, but finding ways to get your data out into that world in a way that more people can understand it, I would argue is as important. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we are totally behind that. I'll get down off the soapbox now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Thank> you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of translating things into the real world, so you told us earlier that you are a uh, softball player, and I'm curious if anything that you've been <laughs> learning with this AI has has uh, affected your softball playing or made you think about it a little bit differently. <laughs> well, in in my softball coaching, so shout out to the Steel City Inclusive Softball Association and Red for Woo-hoo! Filth, who was the silver silver medal winning team. The they wow. the rowdy underdogs that uh, that nobody thought could do it came back and and, and had the big win. Um, uh, we love a good funny. underdog story. <laughs> oh, and this this is a great one, but that's for another time. But uh, <laughs> the, I I think when there was a point in time where I was like working with like Nate and like another guy at Kinetic Pro, and these guys were both like major leaguers both had been on top like top 100 prospect lists in baseball and I look back and I was like the only two groups of humans that I have coached at baseball have been top 100 prospects and my queer softball team (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get better than that talk about like a not a normal distribution Um, (laughs) that's great diversity (laughs) yeah exactly so um what I actually kind of found that was really cool was like using pitch AI and like having people who, you know, really hadn't played a lot of baseball in some cases had never played any baseball and analyzing their mechanics and then showing them like Nate's or another like, you know, high level thrower, how much that impacted them instantly. And they would like start throwing better almost like right away. Just because they were like, oh, I'm going to try and just like get my body and leaning a little bit more forward or make sure that that front foot gets down into the ground before I start rotating my my trunk. And little things like that made a huge difference. And it was just like so cool to see as as we kind of progressed throughout the season, just how many benefits there were to that. And it was cool. We made ProPlay AI, which is, 
one of our, our divisions of Three Mission AI was one of the sponsors of the league and that. It, so it was really cool. You know, it was really cool to work with that community. And I think it just goes to show at any level of development, any level of skill, like biomechanics data can be really useful if it's displayed in the right way. Mm-hmm. So true. And even just like video data, I think sometimes, you know, we think we're doing something or moving in some way and, and you watch a video <laughs> yeah. and, and we always did this at gymnastics. I'm like, I, I am pointing my toes and they're like, look, like, look, this is not <laughs> right. So yeah. just bringing awareness to yeah, what's actually going on. And so as the coach, you're not like telling them a hundred times, you know, I'm sure that, yeah. you know, to do something. Yeah. And it, yeah. So that's well, yeah. numbers. Numbers don't lie. Right. Like, you know, yeah. Putting a, putting a number to something is often very impactful, but video is just as impactful in, in yeah, many cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's worth, what, like a thousand? Well, if a picture is a thousand, then video is what? Times better. Well, you got to get your frame rate. <laughs> yeah. you so it's your frame rate by how many, how many of the duration of the video, that's how many words it's worth. That's so, yeah, the formula yeah. is, yeah, the worth is equal to frame rate times video duration times a thousand. <laughs> especially with slow motion video yeah yeah. all right well i think oh my gosh we could talk to you all day this has been so fun but we're nearing our last two uh questions i think for the interview two of our favorites the first is can you tell us about a time where you felt like you failed and what your learnings were from that experience the, the way that I've always gone about research is with like kind of boundless curiosity and never <laughs> like think about it as like, you know, oh, I'm going to fail this. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that's where it stops. It's like, no, just now you pivot and you go in a different direction. But I can I can tell you about a time that it was an actual fail. Yeah, that was uh, there's a comedic <laughs> part to this. So one of my Ph.D. studies was trying to understand fatigue accumulation during complex force patterns. So basically, what was the influence if you had done something like, you know, heavy, and then you do something light, and then you do something medium, how did that fatigue accumulate compose if you went light, medium, heavy? So uh, I went down to the University of Arizona and did work in Dr. Andy Fugelvan's lab there, along with my supervisor, Dr. Jim Potman. And what we did was we would isolate the distal aspect of the thumb in a, a plastic brace put the the end of the thumb through a metal ring that was attached to a force transducer because that motion there is just flexor pollicis longus. There was no agonists there. So we could say all force and all fatigue was one muscle fatiguing. But then we also would want to say there's a central component to fatigue as well as a peripheral component. Some of it's going to be actual muscle failure, like you're not able to contract any longer, but some of it could be mental. Uh, Some of it could be like neural blockers there. So to do that, we would want to do a a twitch response. So we stick a tungsten electrode directly in the flexor pollicis longus and deliver uh, current through it. And honestly, like it's such a small electrode. And when it gets right into the muscle belly, it's like a little bit of a needle. And then you don't feel it. It's just this weird thing because your thumb would contract. (laughs) So we go down there and I did a bunch of trials. Everything was perfect. Uh, I came back up, I did a few more beta tests with a, like, you know, just a a little bit more, sorry, I'm getting my software world here, but a a few more pilot tests, (laughs) everything was perfect. And then the last person I was going to test on before I went into actual collection was my supervisor. And like, Jim is an awesome guy, but probably is one of the, the finest chirpers in the game. So like, he can talk trash with like the absolute best of them. And Everything, like I said, 100% success rate. Everything is great. Well, of course, the electrode, like when it's inserted into the muscle, like it, it nicks something. And now all of a sudden he starts bruising all in his arm. <gasps> and, of, and, and like he's uncomfortable when the twitch is going and he's in pain. And then we finish the trial and he's like, that was like really, really painful. Like, And he's got like bruising in his arm. And of course, it's against the guy that is going to talk more trash than ever. So then Jim like spends like the next week 
being like, hey, Mike, I, I found your, uh, your, your silverware in the lab. And it's like a picture of like a rusty knife that he sends me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, my failure in research was that I maimed my PhD supervisor as a pilot participant for my final data collection in my, my thesis collection. Uh, and Jim will not let me live that down uh, until this day. <laughs> <laughs> like any good mentor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, he uh, he knows where to hit you and, and how to target yeah. those those chirps in there that they, you know, they have the longest lasting effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've been really you've been able to really uh, move move past that, and it doesn't affect you anymore at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I make sure my silverware is really clean because I think if I see a rusty knife, it's going to be like big time trigger. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing that with us. You know, we always talk about how we get a lot, you know, that failures are learning experiences and there's no such thing as a failure. But, you know, I, I'm under the impression that sometimes there are failures. So, yeah. Sometimes we fail. And I think. Yeah, maiming your supervisor. A, big yeah, failure. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we appreciate yeah. you sharing that with us. And <laughs> it's nice that you can look back and laugh mm-hmm. at that and, and have it as just kind of a, a joke or yeah, it's, it's light and yeah. Yes, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's fine. His hand's fine now. He's doing yeah, great. He recovered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's won every thumb war since. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Cool. Well, how can people follow you and your work if they want to learn more, more about you? Our company account for Pitch AI and Hit AI, all those good things we're doing, is at ProPlay AI. My personal accounts are all Dr. Mike Son, S-O-N-N-E. Okay, awesome. Thank you. And for our last question, we're excited to get your perspective on what you're most excited about for the future of biomechanics. I mean, I, I think we kind of dove into it a lot, but it's <laughs> just, we, you know, it's we the, were pretty it's, excited this whole episode. <laughs> yeah. It's just getting the barriers gone, yeah. right? Like yeah. there's always going to be a place for marker-based motion capture. There's always going to be a place for markerless motion capture with multiple cameras. But the more that we can kind of influence what we want to study in those environments, the more that we're going to find research that it shortens that cycle you know, the, mm-hmm. the basic research to practice. And just thinking back, like, I remember a very influential moment of my like academic career was our first seminar when I started my PhD at McMaster, Dr. Kathleen Martin Guinness, uh, who's a spectacular psychology researcher, uh, I believe out at UBC now uh, here in Canada. She was talking about the whole basic to applied research like cycle. And she was saying on mm-hmm. average, it's 14 years. <laughs> you know, for something to go from research to practice. And I remember being like, I want to make that average go down. And I remember like, you know, my master's thesis, which was the Office Ergo software, like, you know, I, that, I, I was able to commercialize that. And, you know, I, I always like to say I paid off my grad school with my master's <laughs> thesis. But it's like the ability for us to like take something that was basic research and translate into that something that really helps people I think with all the technology in biomechanics now, we're going to be able to shorten that cycle. And I think it's like, it's basically finding shortcuts to get better at human movement. Find the things that work, find the things that matter, find the things that don't, but measure what you're, how you're moving, measure what you're doing. And I think that really sets us up for a very exciting future. And I, I truly believe that this is like the golden era of biomechanics and kinesiology. Like so many people are getting hired by MLB teams right now. So many people are getting hired by big tech firms to, you know, do pose estimation and calculations off of that. That removal of barriers is really going to set biomechanics up to be just huge in the future. And I think we have to be prepared to maybe see biomechanics as not being our joint angles and joint rotational velocities nearly as much anymore. I think people are going to come up with numbers that make it a lot easier for everyone to understand. But at its core, us nerds know what's really going on. (laughs) We know. (laughs) Yeah, we're on to you. We know what's going on there. (laughs) You can't deceive us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh -uh. I won't tell everyone, but I know what's going on in there. Oh my gosh. Well, Mike, this has just been absolutely fabulous. The 
best start to our day. And <laughs> awesome. we appreciate, yeah, we appreciate everything you brought to the interview and everything you're doing uh, in sports biomechanics and in making biomechanics more accessible for the world. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It was a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to seeing my name next to all the other absolute rock stars on your YouTube channel. <laughs> and doing a, one of these people does not belong. <laughs> know we'll put with Mike's son an absolute rock star in the title just you might be the up. only with the softball medal <laughs> <laughs> that we've interviewed so. <laughs> thanks so much to mike for taking the time to be on boom it was so great to just have his energy and be inspired by all of the amazing work he's doing and his philosophies and a little insight into his life too if you enjoyed this interview and learned something from the episode please share it with someone that you think would find value in it and let us know just drop us a little note tweet whatever you want letter letter yeah (laughs) we take love letters (laughs) but before we wrap up let's share some research fails mike was kind enough to share his great research fail with us uh, about bruising his advisor (laughs) (laughs) and melissa um i think has one for us that doesn't include bruising our advisor but is just just bruising, bruising my <laughs> bent of my emotional state. <laughs> but she recovered just like the advisor. <laughs> Barely. I had one of those just really heart, like stomach drop, Ugh. heart sinking moments recently when after I'd already submitted a paper and it was accepted with we did minor, major revisions and then minor revisions as, as, as often it goes. The case. Yeah. So I was super excited to get back you know, that there were just minor revisions left. And I was packaging up the code um, and all the data to make sure that I post it so it's freely available and, and it can be replicated. And I was going through it in more detail and sort of cleaning it up and found a small error in the way I was calculating a measure. I was miscoding it. And unfortunately, it was like the main outcome measure. So I was not happy mm-hmm. to find that. And I was just sitting there and I feel like I like developed this like eye twitch because I was like just so <laughs> upset. But these things happen. So I took a day to kind of regroup and think about what to do. And I met with my advisors and co-authors on the paper to get their perspective. And I figured out how that was going to affect my paper and results and that sort of thing. And it ended up being okay. It did change the results slightly. But when we we submitted, we were just really open about what had happened and what the error was and what changed. And to me, that was such a good learning experience because I think these things happen, right? And I feel like there's so much pressure to always like be correct and not making mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it gets into this like phase of publication. Luckily, it, it wasn't published yet. But I think it was a good experience to just like take a step back and remember that like the most important thing is having good quality work and making mm-hmm. things as accurate and, and honest as it can be. And so that was a really, and it was cool to figure out how to write a letter, how to approach this and kind of explain what happened. So I think if that happens to anyone else, I would just encourage them to just remember that these things happen and, and just being open and honest about it and, remembering that you'll find a way to sort of figure things out and it'll work out in the end. I think it's the best way to go about it. So we did do that. All the code is now available. The paper was accepted. So things worked out, but it was scary. I think most of that speaks though to your devotion to science as its greater purpose. If you were just thinking about science with regards to yourself as a scientist, it could be scary to even like go through and fix that error because, and you might just like, I'm not saying you would ever do this, but like it could be tempting to just leave it and then right. like get out there. Right. But if you think about, you know, the whole purpose of science and furthering our mm-hmm. collective knowledge, like that actually would be against that purpose. Exactly. For putting out wrong information. So many a good paper have been retracted and adjusted. And I think that's all part of science and yeah. the humanity of, of it. And it's kind of incredible as I talk to other people about it, the number of times this has happened with other people. Yeah. And having those conversations with people too about it happening to them, like just made me think about things. So mm-hmm. yeah, just so differently and realizing that this happens all the time. It's not as talked about. And the only reason it's I was really having these about, yeah. discussions about these 
fails, I guess, (laughs) or like these, these things that happen was because it happened to me. And so then we're having these, these open discussions about Mm -hmm. it. And it's hard, I think, to have them otherwise. So, but I think knowing that you aren't alone, I think is really helpful. And it's okay to freak out a little bit. Like I totally freaked out, but yeah, thinking back on the, on the bigger picture and it's really, really helpful. So now that paper's out there, it's, you, you know, sound data, you shared it with the community and yeah, people can analyze it on their own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Make their own mistakes. <laughs> exactly. We're just all out here doing the best we We're can all do, you know? <laughs> and on the show, we always ask about research fails and we often, as I mentioned in this episode, get the answer that they aren't fails, but learning experiences. And we agree that we should totally learn from them, but I, I do think that sometimes things fail. I, I know I fail sometimes and I think that's okay. And the word failure just seems so scary and so negative. So at an attempt to sort of um, reframe or, uh, I don't know, just make it a little less scary, we created a research fails Slack emoji, which we use in our Boom <laughs> Slack now. And then um, we liked it so much that we decided to add it to some swag and created a new line of research fails merch that you can uh, check out on the Boom shop. So um, let us know if you like it and what else you might want to see in the shop. But we hope you'll enjoy it. I think for me, having some research fails swag, it just like reminds me that these things happen. And and it's it's made in a way that's like a little pretty, like I added some flowers to it, you know, to just sort of uh, lighten up. <laughs> Lighten up failure. Make it nice. <laughs> I sleep in my research fail shorts. Just, you know, remind make me my dreams full of full of great learnings from all of my guests. Exactly. Hey boomers, we'd love to hear from you. So please submit a research fail, person to interview, get involved with us. We've got a growing boom team. Mm-hmm. Just shoot us an email at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. Mm-hmm. And check out Boom on YouTube if you want to do more than just hear us. You can, you can yes, see us there. exactly. And the links to all of these are on our, our website, biomechanicsonourminds.com. And on our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter. So you can stay up to date and never miss an episode release of Boom. Because uh, I know that you don't want to, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, so sign up for just more news from us. <laughs> exactly thank you to the international society of biomechanics and the stanford neuromuscular biomechanics laboratory for their support and thank you to peter washington for the music of boom and thank you to all of our boom team we have chris daniel doyan jessica margaret michael tony and uma thank you all so much we couldn't do this without you and thank you for listening i'm melissa and i'm hannah Biomechanics off our off minds. Our minds. Dim, 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 dim.